Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. In July 1973, a fire damaged or destroyed up to 18 million Army and Air Force official military personnel files at the National Archives and Records Administration's National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. These records are important for veterans who are looking to make claims with the Veterans Affairs Department. So how did the government do in helping those whose records were lost or damaged in the fire? The VA's Office of Inspector General looked to answer that very question with a recent audit. To learn what it found, we welcome Brent Arante, Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations with VAOIG. Brent, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Eric. Glad to be back on the show. All right. So lay out exactly what happened at this facility. How many of these records were actually affected? I know that, you know, there was a general number of 18 million, but what did that include? So the reason it's estimated that it was 18 million was that records facility at the time did not actually record the physical location of all of these records. So they're not 100% sure of all the records that were damaged or destroyed. It's estimated that those that served in the Army from November 1912 to January 1960, about 80% of those records were lost or destroyed. And those in the Air Force that were discharged between September 25th, 1947 and January 1st, 1964, approximately 75% of those records were destroyed as well. Wow. Okay. So this might sound like a weird question. And obviously, this is an important undertaking for VAOIG, they would like to know. But why now? Why did the IG take a look into what happened in this process now? So last year, Representative Carbajal from California, through the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, reached out to the IG and asked if we could conduct a review on this process and to see if the Veterans Benefits Administration was actually helping veterans obtain or reconstruct some of those destroyed or damaged records. Okay, so we've gotten the scene set here. What efforts did VA make for those veterans whose records were damaged? And obviously, I imagine some other agencies were involved since it involved NARA and it's a GSA building. Sure. So after the fire, uh, VBA developed several processes to assist veterans on helping with their their reconstruction uh, process. Uh, One of the things that VBA did is they created a fairly lengthy questionnaire that they would send to veterans whose records were, once the veteran filed a claim, and it was determined that those records were part of that fire. Uh, This questionnaire would help in the process of reconstructing what the veteran did in military service. And these questionnaires asked certain things like what period of service did you serve in, what branch of service you were in, what units you were assigned to, and importantly, do they have any military records in their possession that they can submit to the NPRC to help them reconstruct their records. We're speaking with Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations at the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General, Brent Arante. So is this the standardized process for when records are damaged, you know, not just in this case, or was this kind of a special circumstance given the amount of uh, records that were damaged? So this was a special circumstance. There are special processes that VBA has created for their claims processors to follow. And that's part of the problem that we found during our audit, that they were not following these processes. And one of the processes that we think was critical and and an easy fix for VBA was to have these claims processors actually reach out 
to these veterans and call them to get some of this information from this questionnaire, especially if this questionnaire was submitted and it was incomplete. Another thing that VBA would do is they would reach out to, uh, like you indicated earlier, other federal organizations or other entities that may contain or maintain some of these records, such as the National Guard, state and local hospitals, military hospitals, any area that they thought that the veteran may have served or been treated they would reach out to these entities in an attempt to identify any records they could that would help the veteran in in their claim to file for a disability. Oh, got it. All right. And so what parts of the process? I know you just mentioned a few um, parts of the processes that VBA did take upon itself, such as touching base with those whose records were affected. Um, Were there other areas that VBA could improve upon? Let's get into the audit itself. So one thing that the audit team discovered was these claims processors at some point would send out duplicate information. And what they failed to do was clearly look at the veteran's record to identify what evidence was already available and in the veteran's record. And instead of going that extra step, they would just automatically send out a duplicate request for information. And the problem with that request for duplicative information is it added approximately 73 days to an already lengthy process. Another issue that we found was the claims processors were not properly trained. They received one training in their entire career on how to process requests for destroyed or damaged records. After that, there was no more training. And because these records requests are few and far between, folks were not familiar with the process and didn't know where to look in their manuals to identify the proper procedures to follow. And was there any response from VA on this? And do the people who you were speaking about there, you know, do most of them even still work with the VBA? So they do. The claims processors, they're called veteran service representatives. They still work with the VBA. So what we found was the veteran service representatives just were not always following policy. And because they did not see these types of requests very often, they became unfamiliar with policy and What we determined is they only had one training event throughout their entire career. And some of these folks did move into other positions, but that's the importance of having policies, right? So you have a continuity of assistance when a person moves on, whether they are promoted or they leave the VA. And and we found that one training event was just not enough. Um, Also, VBA was very quick to react to one of our recommendations. Within about three weeks of issuing our report, VBA addressed our first recommendation where they created a modernized job aid for these veteran service representatives, and it's an easily accessible job aid. It's very clear. The instructions are very well laid out on all the steps that a veteran service representative needs to take in order to assist the veteran in reconstructing these records. That's obviously going to be a new procedure. Were there any procedures that were changed or other ones created after this incident? Obviously, you'd, you just hope to not have a fire, but things happen. What did VBA say it will do to prepare for a future disaster such as this? Well, one of the recommendations that is still open that we believe they're going to address is, um, although this job aid is going to be a, a substantial tool for these veteran service representatives, they are going to now incorporate this type of training into this specific process more regularly so folks become more aware of not only the steps to take, but where they can locate the information to assist them in the future. 
And just out of curiosity, what happened to the records once they were damaged? Did they make copies of them and then destroy them? Because, you know, the records probably did have some sensitive information on there. That's a a great question. And when we started this audit, I had that same question because we did not know. We weren't aware what has happened to those records. So here's the process. Those records are maintained at the NPRC in a temperature controlled environment. But that's it. They will not touch or try to restore those records until two things happen. Either the veteran files a claim for a disability, and then they will obtain those records. They'll see what records are available, and then they'll determine or assess the amount of damage to those records, and then they will start the restoration process. And that restoration process can be lengthy. It could be weeks to months. There's different types of processes. Um, Our team observed part of the process. We couldn't observe the entire process because they use clean rooms and and we weren't allowed in there, you know, which makes sense. And and another technology that they're using that was not available 20 years ago to assist the veterans is they now have these infrared cameras that can take a picture of a charred document. And that infrared technology allows what they call lifting. It can lift the typed or handwritten information that's on that document, not in 100% of the time, but it's very successful. And they can lift that, they can print it, and now they have a, a better record for the veteran. And also part of the restoration process, if the record was damaged by water, which was used, of course, to put the fire out, they also have a rehydration process that can bring some life back to these documents. That's fascinating. And so you did manage to see some of these records. Were they actually frayed edges and everything like that that you would think of a record surviving a fire? Absolutely. There were. um, We we seen evidence of just nothing but ashes, and those were considered total loss. And even in our report, we have a couple of, of photos that we added to show some of the charred documents where you can't see anything. It's just a charred piece of paper. But like I said, this this infrared technology is amazing. And they could take a picture. You could see exactly what was typed or, or handwritten. Now, they did say the typed information is easier lifted than the handwritten information. But even that still comes through the process. Brent Durante is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations with the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. Brent, thank you so much. I appreciate it. appreciate the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training and what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. 
your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.